Good morning, Redeemer. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, you know. The first five minutes of the service, I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow. These are like COVID days, and now it's just, it's full. Praise God for that. So, praise God for safety. And uh, this morning, I would have you, or ask that you would open up your Bibles to Acts, chapter 8, verse 1. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Scarlett. I should do that. Introduce myself as well. So just before uh, we dive in, let's just take 30 seconds or so. Let's quiet our hearts before we come to, to God's word. So would you bow your hearts with me? Well, our Father who art in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge now that that this is a holy time that we get to come and sit before you and hear from your word, Lord. We have so many voices throughout the week. Lord, we have so many things influencing us, Lord, but this is the time that we come and we sit under the truth. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and to preach to our hearts from your holy word. Lord, open our hearts, open our ears, and we just pray that, that you would preach to each and every single one of us here. And Lord, as we pray this, we know we can have confidence because your word never returns void. So we ask now that you would glorify Christ in our midst. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Hopefully you're at Acts 8 verse 1 by now, or maybe not. That's okay if you're not. But uh, some, now, some of you know this about me, some of you don't, but I am a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, in one calendar year, I actually audiobooked the whole series twice. Now, I was driving a truck, so I had time to do it, but nevertheless, I, I love the Lord of the Rings. And for me, if I'm discouraged, you can make fun of me after if you want, it's totally okay. But when I am discouraged, all I have to do sometimes is pop on Spotify and listen to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, and it just warms my spirits. There's already people laughing. No, that's... <laughs> but, but for me, my, the, the best thing when I want to be encouraged, one of the best things is to, to watch the movies. I just love the movies. I never make Krista watch them because I'm a good husband. Um, but uh, one of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings movies is in the first movie, and it's when the group of heroes, the nine uh, companions, are divided into three separate groups due to an enemy attack. Frodo, the hobbit, tasked with carrying the ring into Mordor to destroy it, along with his friend Sam, are left to try and get to this distant and dangerous destination, and then somehow, some way, destroy it by themselves. Now, if you were if you're watching the movie for the first time, you would feel the hopelessness of the situation. You would think, there is no way that these two little hobbits are going to make their way to Mordor. There's no way. You think, all hope is lost. It's done. But then as the story goes on, you actually learn that the secrecy of their mission, their small stature, and their inconspicuous route to Mordor is exactly what was needed to get the job done. In fact, the very dividing and scattering of this group of heroes would be the very key to the victory and restoration of Middle-earth. Now again, you don't have to be a Lord of the Rings fan to make the connection there. Where we find ourselves in the book of Acts is a very, very similar situation. The church in Acts 8 
much like the heroes in Lord of the Rings, were facing an uphill battle. In a lot of ways, they probably felt hopeless. And to many of them, it, it maybe felt like the time to say, you know what? Maybe we should pack it in. Maybe we should pack it in. But instead of giving in to this fear, what do we see the church do? We see the church grow both in numbers and in resilience. It's remarkable. And in doing so, the church testified to the truth of Jesus' words. Jesus declared this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The enemies of God's people thought they had dealt a fatal blow to the church when Stephen was murdered. But instead, this blow only served to secure the church's expansion. That's what we're going to see this morning, friends, as we dive into our text. Jesus will build his church, and nothing, nothing will stop him. Now, with these things in mind, hear now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now for those of you who have not been tracking with us, the church at this point in time had been faithful in carrying out their mission from Jesus to take the gospel to Jerusalem. They had boldly proclaimed the good news, and they had seen the church grow to over 5,000 people. But they had not yet entered into stage two. Right? They were in stage one doing fine. But Jesus told them this in Acts 1-8. to He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, the, 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 Jew, the Christians were still in stage one. They were in Jerusalem. But then something happened. A young and zealous Pharisee named Saul oversaw and gladly held the coats of the murderers who mobbed and stoned Stephen to death. We saw that last week. This Saul, who would later become known to us as Paul, is introduced to us not as the beloved pastor and missionary, but as a violent terrorist who hated the church. Later on in our series, we will hear about his conversion, but here we get our introduction. And boy, the Saul that we see here looks nothing like the Paul that we're going to meet later on. Thanks be to God. But before we get there, our text this morning tells us that Stephen Stoney launched a persecution that would force many of the church to flee Jerusalem. 
And where did they go? They went to Samaria. They went to Samaria, exactly where Jesus told them to go. You see, stage one had been completed, and now the church was moving on to stage two. So here, if you mark your Bibles up, I see lots of pens here in their Bibles, this would be a helpful spot to write, stage two begins. Stage two of the church's mission begins. Now, isn't that interesting? The opponents of the church, right? Saul and his buddies had thought that this persecution would end the church. But it actually moved the church into the next stage of her mission. As it was famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The opponents thought they understood what this persecution would accomplish, but they were all wrong. Now, for for those of you like myself who've grown up in the church your whole life, you've probably gone through many different or been through many different church growth movements. You know, for me, I remember two of them. One of them was the small group movement, where there was such a focus on small groups. And then secondly, there was the seeker-sensitive movement. That's where you aimed to, to tailor church services, not for Christians, but to actually draw as many non-Christians into the building as possible. Maybe you sat in church meetings where the main concern was how do we get more people in rather than how do we have boys and girls, men and women, transformed into the likeness of Christ. That church growth is a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to talk about, and we are called to pray, to plan, and to put forth ideas which will further cause the gospel to grow. Yes, 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 and amen. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is ultimately God who is steering the ship. He's the captain. He's the sovereign one. He knows where and how and when to lead us. Sometimes he'll take us through times of peace, right? Times of peace and excitement as he did when Peter preached at Pentecost and over 2,000 people we're saved. Hallelujah. But then other times, he's gonna u- he uses other methods. Sometimes our Heavenly Father will ordain a persecution that will hurt, but will lead to the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he will ordain a persecution that he will use to bring expansion. And when he does this, when he does this, Acts 8 teaches us, how the church is to respond. So this morning, let's ask the question, how does the church respond to persecution? Acts 8, verse 1 to 4 tells us that when persecution comes, the church grieves. Look with me to verse 1 to 4 to see this. text says this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, after Stephen was stoned to death, the enemies of the church led by Saul Saul, were emboldened, and they launched, launched a fierce persecution against the church. Now, friends, this didn't consist of mere insults. No. This this consisted of jail time. 
You know, we, we've walked through the book of Acts, uh, the first eight chapters, or forgive me, the first seven chapters, and we've seen that, that Peter and the apostles had been sentenced to prison, right? They got thrown into prison for a night or two. God rescued them. But here, after this persecution began, it wasn't just the leaders of the church who were, potential, uh, who were potentially going to be thrown in prison. It was anybody. Anybody who claimed to be a Christian could now be thrown in prison. The church was still grieving over Stephen, but there's Saul, the enemy of the church, and he is hunting them down. But the words is ravaging the church. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? And it was most likely especially bad for the Hellenists, that is the Greek Jewish, Jewish Christians. Stephen was a Hellenist. Some of these Christians, they fled. Some of them ended up in prison, and some were spared. Saul was ravaging the church, going door to door, not to take surveys, but to take men and women to jail. Simply put, this was a scary time for the church. Verse 2 says this, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Stephen had a mom. He had a best friend. And people had to go and recover his disfigured body for burial. Luke is going to tell us all the good that came out of this tragedy, but he wants us to see and feel that this, in fact, was a tragedy. Hearts were broken and lamentations went up. Glory is coming, but there is pain in the delay. And in that delay, friends, the church grieves. Most of us here have not experienced persecution. We've not feared losing our lives, jobs, homes, or going to prison, but the early church really did. They shed real tears as they saw their brothers and sisters killed, as they saw them dragged off to prison. The early church was learning the real cost of following Jesus, and it meant even losing your life. Now, you could say, well, didn't they know this was coming? I mean, Jesus talked about the stuff. He said persecution was coming. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Come on. But isn't it true that even a storm that's forecasted far in advance can cause terrible damage? So it is with persecution. We may know it's coming, but it doesn't change the fact that it hurts. And friends, we do need to grasp this as we walk through the book of Acts because in our excitement, right, we've seen God doing tr- just amazing things. It would be really dangerous, dangerous for us to neglect seeing the real cost that went into the church taking the gospel to the world. If, if we forget to be clear-headed and truly count the cost of following Jesus, then we are going to be so caught off guard when persecution comes our way. Following Jesus entails persecution. And friends, it hurts. It costs us. And it should grieve us, and it will grieve us. Pastor Levi mentioned our brothers and sisters in India and how they've begun to go through some of this persecution. When those mobs, angry mobs, came to that, those church services on Sunday morning, they would have felt grief 
they would have cried, they would have mourned, they would go to bed that night thinking, Lord, what's next? Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, do you remember a couple years ago when the Taliban took over, when the West pulled out? Do you remember what we did? It was a Thursday night, and we, Redeemer City, just like other churches, gathered on the, the, on the soccer field, and we prayed for our brothers and sisters. We prayed for them. Those who, who knew if they didn't get out of the country, they might not last the week. Christians all over the world are experiencing grief as they live with the reality, the daily reality of potential suffering for their allegiance to Christ. Friends, these stories remind us, Acts 8 reminds us that we have a real enemy, don't we? We have an enemy who hates us, who is bent on destroying the church. And even though he is a dog on a chain, even though he's a lion with no teeth, nevertheless, he can still deal heavy blows, can't he? Some of them will hurt us big time. And when he does, it's going to be right for us to grieve, just as the church did when Stephen was murdered. I just want to say something. I think this is exceptional. I think this is incredible. You know, the Word of God is just is honest. You know, for those of you who are reading, um, going through the RMM reading plan right now, you're reading through Genesis. And every time I get to Genesis and I read the stories, you think, wow. You know, our parents were just bonkers. You know, they were. They were. And that is who God used. You, you, you're reading Genesis and you think, how is the Lord going to make sure that this promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to Adam and Eve, Right about so the, the the serpent's head being crushed. How is he going to fulfill this? When you got Jacob the deceiver, how, how is he going to do this? But God does, and the Word of God is honest about our human condition. And here in Acts eight, we see that that we are human, and when we lose loved ones, when when they are thrown in prison because they're they, because they're of their allegiance to Christ, we need to know that it's okay. It's okay to cry. And it's right to grieve. It's okay. It's a good thing. And I would just say that for many of us here, myself included, because we have not experienced persecution where we are in North America, maybe some of us need to get better acquainted with it. Not, no, hear me. I'm not saying we go out and, and look for persecution. No. I'm saying maybe some of us need to um, subscribe to the voice of the martyrs. I don't know. Is there anybody that's, that has done that? You get an email once or twice. Well, not once or twice. Yeah, once a day or so. And, and, and there's updates. There's stories of our brothers and sisters who are daily suffering for Christ. It's eye-opening, and it helps us. You know, if you don't like reading emails, then subscribe to uh, the podcast series, and you can listen to stories of our brothers and sisters and find out what it's like in parts of the world following Christ. You see that amidst hope for what God is doing, there's grief. That's okay. Persecution will lead us to grieve, but it does more than this. Acts 8, verse 4 to 5, tells us that when the church is per persecuted, a strange thing happens. The church is mobilized. Look with me to verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Persecution has and will continue 
to be a pattern for the people of God, but that is because behind our enemy's plans stands a God who is building his church. Thanks be to God. Matthew Henry, a famous Bible commentator, he put it this way. He said, it was strange, but very true, that the disciples of Christ, the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. Instead of foiling their mission, persecution actually furthered the spreading of the good news. Don't you love that? Isn't that what our God does? In terrible times, in terrible times when we think there is no hope, there God brings about victory. So Philip travels north to Samaria, right? He was one of the seven deacons actually chosen with Stephen to take care of the widows. He's probably grieving still. He probably has tears running down his eyes as he's fleeing Jerusalem. He goes north to Samaria. Now, before we get into this, to keep things short, the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. They did not like each other. Their feud went back hundreds of years. One writer sums it up well. He said, Samaritans were of a mixed ethnicity and religion. They were not Jews, but they practiced elements of Judaism and worshiped Yahweh alongside other gods. And listen to this. The Jews spitefully regarded the Samaritans as hated half-breeds. Hated half-breeds. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And even these Jewish Christians hadn't quite figured out that God really did desire to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Salvation was not just for the Jews. Now, maybe this is hard for us to imagine, right? We're going to actually go through this as we get to uh, Acts 10. We're going to hear more about this. But maybe to put it in perspective, maybe there's some of you here today who have experienced racism or prejudice of some sort. Or maybe you're sitting here and, and you're the one who actually perpetuated that. Well, Philip, as he travels to Samaria, there's no doubt in my mind, he would have had some preconceived notions about the Samaritans. But evidently, when he got to Samaria, those preconceived notions were confronted and they were cast aside as he saw an opportunity not to despise these people, but instead to proclaim to them the Christ. Barriers that had been in place for generations would come down because the message of Jesus Christ is one that has the power to unite all people, no matter how far back the fighting goes. Peace was made between Philip the Jew and these Samaritans because the peace of Christ had begun to rule in their hearts. What we see here is actually a foretaste of what Paul would say in the book of Ephesians. Referring to the, the relationship now between Jew and Gentile, Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Philip saw in Samaria the gospel of peace break down those barriers. So here you have the, the scattering, right? The apparent weakening of the church. But instead, the church through it all was made stronger, larger, more diverse, and able to continue her mission. I love this quote from I. Howard Marshall. He says this, 
the scattering of the Christians led to the most significant step forward in the mission of the church. One might say that it required persecution to make them fulfill the implicit command in 1 verse 8. That was Jesus' command to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and beyond. Right? Persecution, yes, it led to grief, but it also led to mobilization. Success, success through scattering to us, it, it seems counterintuitive. And we often hear strength in numbers. We think the bigger the better. But we learn from Acts 8 that it isn't always so in God's kingdom. God ordained this persecution. He ordained this scattering to initiate further gospel proclamation. He was expanding his kingdom through Stephen's death. Isn't that remarkable? And friends, he still does this today. You know, in fact, we here this morning in, at Redeemer City, we exist as a church because Cornerstone Baptist Church believed this. We were planted in the south ward of Aurelia, not because they just wanted to plant another church. No, we were planted here specifically in the south ward of Aurelia so that the gospel would go forth here as well. We were scattered. Some of you here were some of the first people to come. You were scattered to the south ward of Aurelia to expand the kingdom of God. So whether it's through persecution like the early church saw, or the planting of a new church in a different area, or simply because you get a new job and you have to move to a new city, God is working and growing his church. He's mobilizing us through scattering. And that's because all people, friends, all people need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You may not have, you don't have to be chased from your home in order to make this happen, no. Wherever you are, friends, God has placed you specifically there to spread his fame and glory. Your family, your neighborhood, your, your job, your kids' soccer teams, wherever you are, God places us and moves us, scatters us abroad to spread the news of Jesus Christ to all people. The church is mobilized as she is persecuted. And thirdly, Acts 8 teaches us that through persecution, the church is emboldened. The church is emboldened. Again, this is curious, isn't it? Persecution is supposed to make us cower and fear, but we see the opposite in God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, if the church was merely scattered, and if they, if they only went underground and kept to themselves no one would ever hear about the saving news of Jesus Christ. But friends, that's not what happened. As the church was scattered and mobilized, they kept on doing the very thing that had instigated the great persecution. Look with me to verse 4 again. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. I just find that amazing. Now, I understand I've spent two or three weeks in this text, but this point just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that through persecution, the Lord emboldens his people. It doesn't make sense apart from the Spirit of God, though, does it? No. Saul could make men and women flee Jerusalem, but he could not get them to stay quiet about Jesus Christ. Philip traveled to Samaria and continued to preach 
about the Messiah. Now, as I alluded to before, the Samaritans did have some connections to the Jews as they worshipped the God of Israel. And their, their holy book was actually the Torah, which would have been the, five books of the old, first five books of the Old Testament. And that being the case, the Samaritans were also waiting for the Messiah to come, just like the Jews were. So what did Philip preach about? Well, he knew a bit about the Samaritans' theology. So he went and preached that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that the Samaritans had been waiting for. And in particular, they were clinging to this promise found back in Deuteronomy 18. It reads this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses said those words, and Philip knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So he expounded it further and showed the Samaritans how Christ was not just a prophet like Moses, but that he was the divine Savior who would save the Samaritans from their sins. And what happened as as he preached this news? Look with me to Acts 8, verse 12. You just got to roll your eyes down a little bit further. There we see that God opened the hearts of the people. It says this, But when they, that's the Samaritans, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The crowds that had gathered to hear Philip's message believed the gospel, they were baptized, and the church grew. And not only did it grow, but it grew as Samaritans. Do you remember that? And do you remember that quote I put up earlier? That quote called the the Samaritans half-breeds. It grew as half-breeds and outsiders were hearing the word of God and were being saved. Powerful, emboldened, and life-giving gospel preaching characterized the church as she was persecuted and mobilized. And in doing so, God continued to build his church. And friends, that's how he did it 2,000 years ago. And his pattern is the same. That's how he does it today. Without preaching, the church will not grow. Without preaching, the church is not going to grow. You know, how many of you have heard that quote? Uh, Forgive me. I said it this morning. I should remember it. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. How many have heard that quote? It's good in theory, but the reality is to preach the gospel means you have to open your mouth and you have to speak Christ. That's what Philip and these followers did. They were scattered and they opened their mouth and proclaimed Christ. That's how men and women are going to be saved. That's how God's kingdom is going to be furthered. And to be clear, we're not just talking about Pastor Levi as he preaches the word. No, I'm talking about faithful, bold, and courageous evangelism that all Christians are called to. Let's look to verse 4. I want you to notice the wording here. Luke, writing Acts, says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Right? Who was scattered? Lots of people. Lots of new Christians were scattered. Maybe they had only been Christians for a week or two. They were scattered, and they probably couldn't articulate the gospel as clearly as Peter or Stephen or Philip. But nonetheless, nevertheless, they went and they proclaimed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They told people that Jesus performed and fulfilled all that the law of Moses pointed to. 
They told people that he died on the cross not because he had any sin of his own, but for the sin of the world. They told people that Jesus rose again in power and then he's at the right hand of the Father and that through faith in him, we can be saved. They did that and the church grew. Persecuted. Men and women who probably still had tears in their eyes went and preached the word and God expanded his kingdom. God uses faithful men and women, boys and girls, to evangelize to the world, to the lost world around them. And I want to encourage you, there's no great requirement for this. There's no great requirement. All that you and I need to have in our back pocket is a simple knowledge of how Jesus saves sinners. Now, I'm not putting these two down, but little Kezia and Piper, they're 10 and under. How old? Forgive me. I think they're probably eight and nine, six, seven, eight, nine. The, the point is, they're small. And I, I have the privilege of teaching them. I should know their ages. But anyways, they, a couple months back, when they shared their testimony, proclaimed Christ to us. If they can do it, I think you and I can, adults. We can do that. Philip went to Samaria and he preached that Jesus was the Messiah. He saw a connection point between the Samaritans and the Jews. That was his launching pad, and he preached the word. And I'd ask you today, what will your launching pad be for your evangelism? All of us have loved ones in our lives, whether they're on our street, in our workplace, in our family. We all have men and women who need to hear the gospel, who need to be saved. You know, and I would just say, sometimes I think, sometimes we're, we're so prone to believe that the world around us is just completely closed off to the gospel. Is it, that's my disposition. I'll be straight up with you. It's my disposition. I go in thinking, nobody wants to hear this. But I feel like the more you get to know people, the more you, know, the more you realize they're actually probably more open than we think. And these conversations don't have to be difficult. You know, maybe... Pastor Levi was praying about the, the beauty of God's creation. Maybe it'll, you'll have a conversation with a coworker about the beauty of the snow, and it'll lead you to speak about God as the creator. Maybe it'll be somebody at work who's just lost a loved one, and you're able to go and offer compassion and hope and to remind them that sin and death were never meant to be a part of this world. That's an easy conversation, a straight line to Jesus, isn't it? Or maybe it'll be a conversation that you have but how much you love your spouse and kids and how God actually designed the family to look this way. Maybe it'll be something else, friends, but whatever it is, the point is that the church will only grow as we preach the word, each and every one of us. We're called to preach as we're scattered, wherever we find ourselves in, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, even at the grocery store, or even at the gym, I hear of you, some of you are actually preaching the word and inviting people to church at the gym in between sets. It's not rocket science, and this is what we're called to. We're called to preach the word, to be mobilized. And before we move on, but look with me to verses 6 to 8. There we read this. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
catch this, so there was much joy in that city. The church mobilized and emboldened, preached, and God did amazing things in Samaria. He transformed lives and brought joy to that city. Again, don't we foolishly forget that the gospel is actually supposed to be good news? Right? The angels announcing the birth of Jesus declared this, good news of great joy that will be for all people. Good news of great joy. Right? Just as, as God used grieving Philip to bring the gospel of joy to Samaria, so you and I should have higher expectations of what God will do as he scatters and mobilizes us. We should expect to see men and women transformed by this news. We should expect to, to hear of, of conversions happening. We should expect to hear of new believers being sanctified from degree of glory to the next. We should and must expect great things from our God. Oh Lord, give us faith to believe this. Well, friends, the, the church as she is persecuted will grieve. She will grieve. But she will also be emboldened or mobilized and she will be emboldened. And friends, maybe some of you here, you're not undergoing persecution, but nevertheless, you're just feeling discouraged and, and you're just feeling weighty today. We know that there's, we're a needy people, are we not? And maybe this text is just hitting you and you're feeling like, Lord, I'm not being persecuted, but nevertheless, I just feel like I'm in a storm and I don't feel like I have any hope. Well, this episode in the life of the early church reminds us that our God is far greater, far more powerful, and far wiser than we could ever imagine. It just says the early church couldn't see what God was doing through this horrible, rampant persecution. So, too, maybe you can't see that he is producing wonderful things that are in the distant future for you. Remember the Lord is with you. Just as he was with the early church, he's with you. Just like our grieving brothers and sisters this morning who are experiencing persecution, God is with them. He's with them. Our God is sovereign and mighty and working through these storms. And another thing I just want to comment, you know, we need to be a people who look back to the word of God and trust in the word of God that what he did in the past actually happened. You know, this morning as I was preparing, I was just thinking about how many times do you think the early church looked back to this episode in Acts 8? Like, personally, I think they probably looked back a lot. They, they would look back in times of discouragement and say, do you remember when Saul was chasing us, hunting us down, murdering us, putting us in prison, and then God saved him, changed his future forever? Do you, do you remember when Philip and a bunch of other Christians had to flee Jerusalem and had no hope. And then God took the gospel to Samaria and beyond. Like, I bet you the early church did that a lot, friends. And friends, we have to do the same. We're going to sing a song after. And it says, I don't, know what is it? I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. That's one of the lines. We need to be a people who do that. We look back to the word of God and see how faithful he has been. And then on top of that, we need to be a people who look back to our own lives and look back to the storms that he's brought us through and say, Lord, you have been faithful. 
You've delivered me time and time again, and you will bring me through again. And then lastly, maybe this morning you're sitting here, and I think this word is for all of us. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, Matt, it's only the end of January, and I just feel like I'm stuck. I'm in a bit of a rut. You know, my Bible reading, my prayer time, my evangelism, I just, I'm stuck. We all go, go through those seasons, and this text reminds us that God knows how to shake us up. He knows how to mobilize us and embolden us and scatter us so that we would take his gospel to the lost, doesn't he? So this morning, maybe that's you, and you're like, Lord, I just know I need, I need you to get me unstuck. I need to be mobilized afresh. Well, first thing I would say is talk to a brother or sister beside you. Confess that. Say, Joe, Sally, I need prayer. Let's pray now that the Lord would get me unstuck, that he would mobilize me for mission, that he would set me on a trajectory where, where the things of this earth, where my kingdom come wouldn't be my prayer, but it'd be thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The church, friends, going, undergoing persecution is a reminder, not that we're going to fail, not that God has lost control, but it's a reminder that nothing will stop our God. Persecution and suffering will come, and when they do, we're going to grieve. We're going to weep. We're going to lament. But let's remember that the Lord will mobilize us, and he will embolden us. He will scatter us so that we proclaim his glory for his name's sake, for our good, and for the sake of the world. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that nothing will stop you from building your church. Lord, we need to hear this and we need to believe this. We need to pray this. Lord, not only for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters who right now in this world are suffering for your name. But Lord, we thank you that we can have hope, faith, assurance that you are working through it all. You are still the same sovereign God taking your church from stage one to stage two and beyond. And Lord, we ask now that you would just buttress our faith, strengthen us, embolden us, mobilize us, Lord, that we would go forth with a desire to proclaim you to a world that so desperately needs to hear you. Lord, we pray all of these things in the mighty and saving and glorious and hope-filled name of Jesus Christ. Worship team.